0: Let's open our Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we're studying verse by verse through this wonderful epistle of the Apostle Paul. I've said many times in this study that some of the concepts, some of the doctrines that are found here are difficult. The Apostle Peter said as much, and he commented that some of Brother Paul's teaching is hard to understand. I think one of the reasons we find Romans difficult is that Paul makes his arguments in fundamentally different ways than most folks make arguments today. We've been saying about, uh, we have a saying about truth in our English vernacular that we wanna nail it down. We wanna fix it firm to our hearts and to our conscience. Um, that That is, we want to make it uh, firm. Most of us have used a hammer to nail things down. Um, you start it sort of gently and then you give it a few whacks. When I was a very young man working on a construction crew in college, I prided myself that I could fasten a two-by-four to a wall with a one tap and two whacks. That's sort of how we tend to communicate truth, isn't it? Uh, we'll introduce a point, and then we'll hammer it home with a couple of illustrations, and like the rodeo cowboy, we're on to the next one. But if you've been paying attention, that is not at all how the Apostle Paul is teaching us the doctrine here in Romans. He is taking his time, he is slow, he is meticulous, and rather than nailing truth, he is screwing it to our consciousness one turn at a time. Now a screw is the simplest and one of the most ingenious machines in the world. It has a sharp point, which in our analogy about teaching truth is the main point being taught. And rather than being driven into the wood by sheer brute strength, the screw rotates on that sharp point and covers the same ground multiple times, going deeper with each revolution until it is securely fastened and permanent. That is how Paul is teaching his truth, the truth of justification by faith. Here in chapters nine through 11, the sharp point upon which his truth is made is that just because most Jewish people are rejecting Jesus in the gospel, is no indication that God or his promises have failed. He offers a number of proofs of that. Number one, he says, there's never been a time in history in which all people truly serve God, even in Israel. Secondly, he says Israel's unbelief is their own fault. He says in chapter 10, they sought righteousness through works rather than by faith. He also points out, using the Old Testament, that historically, God has always used a remnant, a small portion of the whole, to accomplish His purposes. We illustrated that with Elijah's story where after he defeated the prophets of Baal, he went on the run from Jezebel and moaned to the Lord that he was the only one left that loved God. God rebuked him and said, "There are 7,000 others that I've reserved who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Probably the most important point that we'll come to in a couple of weeks is that God still has a future plan for Israel. God has not given up on them. Now, In our text this morning, Paul is circling back to that third point though that in every generation, some are saved and some are not. It's always been the case. This is how Paul has always viewed the world. Even before he was saved, he viewed the world in two broad categories, Jews and Gentiles. Now that it is saved, he still views the world in two broad categories, this time though, saved and lost. He uses different terms to describe those two groups. In this case, he calls them the elect and the hardened. That is true in the general population. There are some who believe and those who do not. That's true among Jews. There are some who believe and most do not. So let's read our text. Romans chapter 11 beginning in verse 7. What then, Paul asks, what Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. The title of the message today is Hardened Sinners. As I look around the room, some of you went to Hardin Simmons out in Abilene, didn't you? It's a little Baptist college out there. It's educated many missionaries and pastors and businessmen and women over the years. Right down the street from Hardin-Simmons University is a Church of Christ University called Abilene Christian. And Abilene Christian students get a kick out of calling Hardin-Simmons University Hardin Sinners University. Now, that's not what we're talking about today. But Paul does describe here a group of people who he calls hardened sinners. Now, look at verse 10. He says, what Israel was seeking, it did not obtain. Now, what was Israel seeking? It's odd to say that an entire nation was seeking the same thing. But by and large, Israel through its history has sought righteousness. That is, they were looking to have a right standing with God. That's a good thing to pursue, isn't it? May God increase the tribe of people who are seeking righteousness. Their problem was they chose the wrong path to get there. They chose works righteousness. They thought by keeping the Old Testament law They could attain righteousness. Paul points out over and again that through the keeping of the law will no flesh be justified. They wanted right standing with God. They were zealous for it. They worked hard at it. They talked about it. They read about it. But they pursued it in the wrong way. Just as the Greeks were pursuing something. Paul says the Greeks pursued wisdom. Philosophy was the path that they chose. It did not lead to heaven any more than works righteousness leads to heaven. And I guess if you could describe our own country, America, what do we pursue? And that would be independence and and freedom. Those are good things, but the only true freedom is found in Christ. And so he describes these two groups of people. First, he begins with the ones he called chosen or elect. He says the elect obtained righteousness. Who are the elect? What do we know about them? Well, here's what we know about. God's chosen, the word elect means to choose. We had a little election here this week, didn't we? Last week. And um, we don't know yet the outcome of that in some cases. But there's something that has become very clear as the election results have finally rolled in, and that is this, Jesus is still Lord. And he always will be, no matter who ultimately is elected in this election or any in the future. Here's what we know about the elect, those God chose to salvation. Number one, they were not chosen because of their moral superiority. God didn't look down from heaven and say, this group's better than that group. They were not chosen because of their potential. They were not chosen for any of the reasons we choose people. Now think back to your uh, polling booth this week and you looked at the names, hopefully you had done a little research. Why did you vote for who you voted for? Well, I can guarantee you this, it was not the same reason that God chose you for salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.20 says this, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul says God did not choose to save people in his sovereignty through philosophy. Didn't choose to save people through the keeping of the law. He says he chose to save them what he called the foolishness of the message preached. Now he's talking about foolish preaching. He's saying people who reject the gospel think that preaching is foolish. It's foolish to their ears. But to those who are being saved, it's the most wonderful news in the world. Verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now hear this. For consider your calling, brothers. Think about your own salvation, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen The weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world to despise. God has chosen, three times he says it, the things that are not, so that they may nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man may boast before God. Why is it that God has a different standard of choosing than we do? We tend to choose the most eloquent, the one that represents our best interest, we think, maybe the one that gives the best presence, the best dresser. Myriad of reasons why we choose candidates. God says he chose the foolish things of the world so that no man may boast before God. What does he mean? Well, remember the story of Gideon we told last week. Gideon was told by an angel of God to go down and fight the Midianites on behalf of the nation of Israel. 22,000 people joined themselves to Gideon to go fight this battle. And God said, they are too many. I know their hearts. If they win this battle, they're going to take credit for it because their army was so large. So send send a bunch of them home. Well, he whittled it down to 300 so that God would get the glory. So the elect are those that God in his sovereignty has chosen for his own purpose to bring himself glory. Now let's get very specific. Can you and I identify the elect in a crowded room? Well, I certainly cannot. I don't know who they are. I can't pick them out of a police lineup. Charles Spurgeon said if he knew who the elect were, If God had painted the letter E on their back, He'd go around London lifting up coattails. (laughs) We don't know who the elect are, so who do we preach to? We preach to everyone. This offer of salvation goes out to everyone to the Taiwanese people, to Americans, to Australians, even to the ends of the world. So, um, because we don't know who the elect are until we get to heaven, How are we to behave? Well, Acts chapter 13, I wish you'd turn there. This is a very important text. that's overlooked many times. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. The apostle Paul is on one of his missionary journeys and he comes to a place called Pisidian Antioch and he does as is his habit. He goes on the Sabbath to the Jewish synagogue and he preaches the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ to his fellow Jews. Well, some of them liked what they heard and told him to come back next week and so he did, and we pick up in verse 44 of Acts chapter 13. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary for the word of the Lord to be spoken to you first. And he's speaking to Jewish people. Since you repudiate, you repudiate it, And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now hear this, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, heard what? That the gospel was for them. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed. That's evangelism in a nutshell. We preach to everybody. Paul didn't look out on the crowd and say, you go here, you go there. He's not God. None of us are God. We preach to everyone, and those that the Lord chooses to save will be saved. That's the elect. But there's another group of people addressed here in Romans 11, as we go back there, is those who do not believe. And Jesus seemed to say in the Sermon on the Mount that those will be the majority. Those that choose that big gate and wide path that leads to destruction... God here calls them the hardened, the hardened. What does that mean? Where have we heard that phrase before? Well, remember, Paul likes to circle back and cover the same ground again. And so if you cast your eyes up at chapter 9, Romans 9, verse 18, you'll see where it comes from. Speaking of God, he says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires. And he what? Hardens whom he desires. Now Paul had been referring to the case of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who because of hardness of heart would not let the Jewish slaves leave. And so God sent plague after plague. He'd send a plague. Pharaoh would seemingly relent and say, okay, you can go. And then before they left, he changed his mind. Even the last plague, after uh, the death of the firstborn, he let them go and then changed his mind pursued them and of course lost his own life. They're in the Red Sea. So what does it mean that God hardens hearts? Well, it may sound strange when we say that God hardens someone's heart. In the King James Version, this word is rendered blinded. They're similar. Uh, The actual word literally means to cover over with skin, to make insensitive, to callous, in other words. I said, I worked on a construction crew as a young man, I had very thick calluses. I do not anymore. <laughs> it's been a long time since I did that kind of labor, and I'm not accustomed to it anymore. But there were times where I had very thick calluses, and I could not feel certain parts of my hand very easily. Well, that's what God does spiritually to a person who hears the gospel time and again and continues to re- reject it. I take the hardening to be an act of judgment in which God removes restraint from a sinner because of their own willful disobedience. We see this in Romans chapter 1 when Paul's talking about humanity, how it is devolving further and further away. God has, he said, turned them over to a reprobate mind. Reprobation is a concept in which God passes over someone. That is, he no longer interacts with them, he lets their sin go to its logical conclusion. If you want to see what that looks like, read Romans chapter one when you get home, you'll see it. I think there's some important things to remember though, when we're talking about hardening of hearts. Number one, we should not become arrogant towards others because all of us at one time had a hard heart to one extent or another. We were not born spiritually or morally neutral. The Bible says we were dead in trespasses and sins. In fact, when God describes salvation in the book of Ezekiel, He talks about it in terms of radical open heart surgery, where He removes a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And when we think of the elect and the hardened, two groups of people in the world, it simply means the saved and and, and those who are still in their sins. It's important to remember that God did not choose any person for salvation out of a pool of morally neutral people. Right, he chose us in that we were while yet, yet dead in sin, but he shows mercy to some, but he did not show injustice to any, to any, and he gets the glory in any case. Some people are frustrated and angered by verses like these. Why doesn't God just save everyone? Well, remember, everyone deserved hell. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says it like this, it does not amaze me that God hates Esau. The amazing thing is that God loves Jacob. <laughs> that God would save any of us is a miracle of grace because we all deserve wrath. Here's something else that I would point out about God's hardening of hearts. God, as far as I could tell in searching the Bible this week, has never hardened an obedient person. <laughs> There's never been a person who's going hard after things of God that God hardens them And makes them spiritually insensitive, just the opposite. The more a person pursues God the right way by faith, the more God comes close to them. So my point is, don't accuse God of injustice here. Remember what he said a couple of chapters earlier. He is the potter, we are the clay. Does the potter not have the right to do what he wills with the clay? So that's the hardened. We've had the elect, the hardened, and now let's look at the history. This is what Paul does, doesn't he? He makes an argument, he makes a point, and then he makes it really um, screwed to our consciousness, and then he goes back to the Old Testament and says, let me show you what I mean. He illustrates it with Scripture. Verse 8, just as it is written, Paul says, this is the history, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. Just as is it written, Paul says. He means he's about to either quote directly or paraphrase some Old Testament scripture. He's done it throughout these three chapters. He's addressing Jewish people, so his primary arguments are always from the Old Testament. And he gives three passages here. Isaiah 29, a passage from Deuteronomy, and Psalm 29. From Isaiah, the people are in a stupor, you send people in a stupor, either through drugs or alcohol or through shock. They stumble around incoherently. They don't understand what's going on around them. And Paul says that's what's happened to these hardened people. They hear the word, they're taught the word, but they have an inability to comprehend it or to practice it because they're in a stupor because of the hardness of their heart, because of their continuous, willful unbelief. And then he quotes David in Psalm 29 and says, "Their table has become a trap or a snare is the real word there." You know, David said in the 23rd Psalm, "Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies." He was speaking of the blessings of communion with God. And back in chapter nine, Paul listed all the benefits that Jewish people had, that Gentiles didn't. They had the Old Testament. They had the prophets, they had the ordinances, they had the law. And yet, they thought by keeping of that law, they could be right with God. And so it became a trap or a snare to them. The very thing that was supposed to be a blessing to them became their undoing. And David says that the table has become a snare. And I think specifically there, he's talking about the Old Testament. The Word, what a blessing it is. Out of all the nations of the earth, God chose to give His revealed Word through the Jews and yet they misunderstood it and misapplied it in large. What does it have to say to us? Well, in conclusion, let me say this. There is a real existential danger that by hearing the gospel year after year, week after week, and not accepting it, one may be given over and have their heart hardened. Why would you say that, Pastor? Because of what we read in Hebrews 13, 15, which says, while it is said, today, if your' heart If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So, If you're a Christian here today, you've been hearing this gospel week after week and saying, not now, later, or I don't buy it. Do not harden your heart because what happens when you harden your heart, God often gives you over to that and you become more and more hardened. And so you will be unresponsive to the things of God. Now, we don't know what God might do. We preach and pray and let God be the judge. I've heard well-meaning people point to another person who is deep in sin and say, that person is beyond help. That person can't be saved. We're not God, are we? Maybe you're here today and you say, I have a relative who I think is beyond help. Maybe their heart is so hardened they can't hear or be saved. Or my friend is too hardened to ever come to God. Be careful, because that may be exactly the same thing that someone used to say about you before you were saved. God can do all things I'm reminded of what Jesus said to his disciples as recorded in Matthew chapter 19. Remember the rich young ruler who came and he wanted salvation, or so he said, but he thought he could become righteous by keeping of the law. He thought he was righteous. And Jesus pointed out through a series of events how unrighteous he was. The scripture says he went away sad because Jesus told him to go and sell all he had and give to the poor, but he was unwilling to do that. He was unwilling to recognize his own sinfulness. And as they were talking after that situation, Jesus noted that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter heaven. And Peter said, who then can be saved? Because he thought if anyone could be saved, it was the blessed. And he took blessing to be having financial blessings. What did Jesus say? Don't worry about it, Peter. Leave it up to the Lord. He said, no. He says, with men it is impossible, but with God, what? all things are possible. And so the word for you today is let God be the judge. You pray, you proclaim the message, you evangelize, and you pray again, and you let the Lord work in hearts. He's a good, righteous, and merciful God. He rejoices when one soul is saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, these are hard things to hear, that there's only two groups of people in the world, really. We, we rank and categorize people in dozens of ways, but God only, too, the lost or the saved. Another way of saying is the elect and the hardened. Father, I thank you that in your sovereignty you have chosen many in this room for salvation. But we've been reminded today it's not because we were morally superior than others, not because you saw some hidden potential in us. In fact, you did it so that we wouldn't get the glory for it and that you would father that's why you save all people And father we would plead with you to save the lost even some lord that the world would say is too far gone may they become trophies of your grace help us not to grow weary in doing what is right telling the good news and praying and seeking the lost father i pray if there's even one here in this room today who knows you not free pardon of sin that today their spiritual eyes would be opened, that you would cut through their calloused heart and replace it, that heart of stone, with a heart of flesh. Would you do it for your own name's sake and your own glory, in Jesus' name, for his sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.